0: So an explosion struck a Beirut suburb on Tuesday. It struck an area called Dahi, which is a, an area right outside, right on the edge of the city, quite residential, very densely populated. It hit part of a building, just one floor of a building, that had a Hamas leader called Saleh al-Aruri, who Hamas later said was killed by the strike, along with uh, six others who are all in the organization.
1: Sarah Dedouche is our correspondent in Beirut, and she's been reporting on this attack and how it's connected to the war between Israel and Hamas.
0: So far, no one has claimed responsibility for the strike,
1: but it very much, you know, followed the pattern that we've usually seen from Israeli assassinations abroad. This sparked fears that the war could be spilling into Lebanon and beyond. Carrying out a strike like this kind of spread this fear
0: this panic across the Middle East that this is going to elicit a very big response from Hezbollah because mm. Hezbollah is the largest force in Lebanon. Mm. And so this is very much seen as an infringement, not only on Lebanon's sovereignty, but also on Hezbollah's sovereignty and ability to keep the country safe and be in control of what's happening. And so everyone, after the strike happened on Tuesday night, on Wednesday, there is this kind of suspense and anticipation across the Middle East. Even in Gaza, there were people, everyone was waiting to tune in to the speech by Hassan Nasrallah, who's the head of Hezbollah, who was expected to address the attack. He's saying, whoever considers a war with us will regret it. A war with us will be very, very, very costly. We have, until now, taken into consideration the Lebanese situation and national interests. But if a war is waged on Lebanon, then the Lebanese national interest requires us to go to the war till the end with no restrictions. He promised that there is going to be a response and punishment to the attack. But separately from that, he made it very clear that if Israel is thinking about waging war on Lebanon, then the response from Hezbollah will be all-out war.
1: From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Thursday, January 4th. Today, we're going to talk about the strikes in Beirut and the growing fears of a widening war in the Middle East. So, Sarah, I want to learn more about this attack and also the significance of this strike in Beirut. How significant was this killing of a senior Hamas leader at this point in the war between Israel and Hamas? So so there's a lot to unpack here.
0: First, looking at the significance that this will have on Hamas itself. Aruri is the second in command of Hamas's political office. He helped found the military arm Assam brigades. He's been known to be quite close still with the military part. Uh, Not a lot of the people in the political arm are. What we know is that Aruri was also seen as sort of an envoy. He was very close to Hezbollah, which is the strongest political party and paramilitary group in Lebanon. Hamas and Hezbollah are both Iran-aligned. Hamas had a bit of a break with Iran and other Iran-aligned groups since 2011, but they've rejoined the ranks in 2017. And Aruri was someone who was very much trusted by Hezbollah in Lebanon. He was uh, seen as an emissary of sorts.
1: He kind of gave them an intel and insight into what's happening in Gaza. Well, given his significance, this one individual who was killed in this blast, you know, stepping back, why would targeting this Hamas leader in Lebanon away from the bounds of the war within, you know, Gaza and Israel. How is that factoring in just like geographically and then geopolitically?
0: A lot of Hamas's uh, leadership is in exile. So we see a lot of them in Lebanon and Qatar. It's easiest in theory, to target them in in Lebanon versus Qatar, where we have, you know, a U.S. ally and and a a very tight security uh, situation. Um, So Lebanon is the logical place to strike Hamas leaders if one was to pursue that.
1: Mm -hmm. Sarah, I think it would be useful to also unpack a little bit the relationship between Hamas and Hezbollah. Just how are these two groups connected and what has been Hezbollah's posture so far since... Hamas launched this attack in Israel on October 7th. So,
0: Hamas and Hezbollah used to be allies before 2011. After 2011, when, you know, popular protests erupted all over Syria, over, you know, Syria next door to to Lebanon, Hamas came out and said that they opposed the Syrian president's rule. They said they were pro the popular protests. They made their stance very clear and they ruffled a lot of feathers, angered a lot of their allies, were subsequently kicked out of Syria. There was this big break between them and all of the Iran-alliance groups, which includes the Houthis in Yemen, the Syrian president, Hezbollah in in Lebanon, uh, different Iraqi militias. In 2017, they started returning back into the fold. Arouri was actually the leader who was assassinated. He was part of the delegation that... Uh, seems to have been the first delegation to go to Iran to mm-hmm. patch these relations in 2017, around the time right before they announced that they were resuming relations. So Hezbollah and Hamas, I think, have a, you know, a bit of a tenuous relationship. I think it took a really long time for different groups to get over this break in relations, especially from the Syrian side, but... Areas that Hezbollah has hold sway in has been host for Hamas leaders for years now because mm-hmm. there's few places that they could exist. Mm-hmm. And they're both allied, you know, with Iran. And so they, at some point when they return back into the fold, they're all seen as part of this Iran-aligned axis of resistance, so-called axis of resistance in the area, in the region. So they're allies, but they had a break in relations. They're very much distinct groups. They have different mm-hmm. goals and different aspirations, different mm-hmm. groups that they respond to Hezbollah is pan-Arab, but it's still very much a Lebanese organization. Hamas is very much a Palestinian organization, mm-hmm. uh, very limited in its fight inside uh, Gaza. So they have a working relationship. But from what we've seen from Hezbollah, what I've personally heard from them, it just it does not seem that they were informed of the October 7 attacks mm-hmm. before they happened. And there seems to have been some kind of upset about the fact that such a massive you know, operation would happen without them having the sufficient heads up. Mm.
1: Yeah, and it sounds like from what you're sharing that this blast within the borders of Lebanon in an area where Hezbollah is very strong, that there is now fear that Hezbollah is going to be pulled into this war and that the whole region will, I mean, implode. I I don't want to, you know, use... Language that's too extreme here, but I think there is this fear, at least for those of us not in the region, that that the situation is going to spiral even more out of control than it is right now.
0: That, That was the big fear before the speech, and obviously we have yet to see what the response is. But after Nasrallah's speech, I think those fears were tempered a bit. Uh, just because the response that he spoke of was distinct from his addressing of Mm -hmm. of a possible war with Israel. He was very careful to make clear that those two things are distinct and that they're not necessarily out to avenge a leader from a different organization in a way that would drag the country into war. I think we're going to see their reaction when they put it out. It may not be he's supposed to speak tomorrow again. He may not announce it then. We may see it in the days after Mm -hmm. or the weeks after, but the escalation seems to be, from his language, tempered that it, would, that it would just be to respond to that and not so big that it would warrant a big enough response from Israel that would then lead to an all-out war. So they're still very much playing this balancing act mm-hmm. on both sides. And I, I think if Israel was the one who conducted the strike, we know Israel's capabilities and we know that Israel could have wiped out the entire building if that was the case. But the, the strike was very, very precise. It killed Only, as far as we know, only the people that were in that apartment, all individuals who belong to Hamas, different groups uh, inside Hamas. And so that's being perceived as messaging from Israel that it does not wish to escalate into an all-out confrontation with Hezbollah.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sarah, there's also other news coming out of the region this morning that... I'm sure by now is on people's radars. There was an attack in Iraq this morning. The U.S. military carried out an airstrike that killed a leader of a militia group. What happened there? And is that connected at all to this other conversation of what happened in Beirut earlier this week?
0: So, the attack in Iraq this morning was claimed by the U.S. The U.S. officials said it was in response to the attacks that have been launched by the militia on U.S. bases, because different militias, including this one, have claimed attacks on uh, U.S. bases in Syria and in Iraq. Mm. And what they say is a response to the aggression that's happening in Ghazi right now. So that was related to the overall war, but not so much the assassination that happened in Lebanon.
1: And then there's this other news that came out Wednesday about blasts in an Iranian city that has left roughly 100 people dead. And and that was during the commemoration of the killing of the senior Iranian general, Soleimani, by a U.S. drone strike back in 2020. So what do we know about those blasts on Wednesday? Do we know who was behind that? And I think a question on a lot of people's minds is, did Israel have anything to do with that?
0: Initially, there was a lot of fears that this may have been Israel because that would signal a widening of the breadth of the conflict, even though it didn't really uh, strike many people as something that Israel would do. The nature of it, the fact that it wasn't precise, um, the fact that it hit a big civilian gathering, made it seem that it was an indication that it wasn't. But on Thursday afternoon, uh, the Islamic State on Telegram did claim responsibility for the attacks in, in Iran. So now we know that they were separate from everything that had happened in the last three months. It was on the anniversary of Qasem Soleimani's uh, assassination, but it was you know, conducted by a group that had nothing to do with the ongoing conflict in Gaza.
1: After the break, Sarah and I talk about the next phase of the war between Israel and Hamas. We'll be right back. So, Sarah, I know we've said we we don't know exactly who was behind the strikes in Beirut that took out this Hamas leader. But given the reporting that you and your colleagues have done, it does fall in line with how Israel is operating in this moment and the war it's embroiled in with Hamas. So if it was Israel, can you unpack the calculation here? Because it does feel like a, a risky move to strike Lebanon, another country, right now at this moment? There's been
0: a few Israeli officials who have said publicly or privately from leaked recordings that were carried by Israeli media that they're planning to track down and take out Hamas leaders in every location in the world, Including Lebanon, Turkey, and Qatar. So what we're likely to see after the killing of Harudi, we're probably gonna see a lot of Hamas leaders, especially in Beirut, go underground. I've already not been able to reach any of my contacts who have been very available. A lot, you know, some of their phones have been turned off since the assassination. There's a big chance that they've all gone into hiding or underground or just disappeared for a bit to be safe. The Israelis said that this is something that could take years. So even if they do go underground for the time being, even if the war does wrap up at some point, we may see this kind of picking away at Hamas leaders that were involved in October 7th mm. for a very long time. And they said that this could happen in Lebanon, Turkey, or Qatar. And Lebanon is, like I said, the most low hanging fruit, even though there's Hezbollah, even though there's a risk of regional war, even though it could you know, lead to an escalation that would further threaten the stability of Israel's northern border. Targeting them in Turkey and Qatar is an even bigger feat, and it's a much more um, you know, uh, difficult operation.
1: Sarah, what about the United States, which is Israel's staunchest ally? The United States supplies a lot of aid to Israel. Could the United States get pulled further into this? And and where does the U.S. stand right now?
0: It it could mean that the U.S. could get further pulled into this, especially because Israel and the U.S. are are often very much seen as two forces that are hand in hand. What, even, even we see this from Hamas whenever they want to beseech for a ceasefire or any crime that they see has been committed against Palestinians in Gaza, they often address the U.S. They're very aware of U.S. internal domestic politics and there's a, It's not just them that's pulling the U.S. Obviously, the U.S. is Israel's biggest, staunchest ally, and so the U.S. has vested interests in protecting its ally. But the Houthis in Yemen, uh, the Hezbollah in Lebanon, the Iraqi militias in Iraq, everyone is very aware that attacking U.S. interests could put pressure in a way on the U.S. to act faster because just attacking Israel is not enough. Mm. I mean, since October, there's been groups that have, you know, struck U.S. bases in Syria and Ida. We've seen Yemen's Houthi militants board a, a container vessel in the Red Sea, which led to a firefight between U.S. Navy helicopters and the militants, and they killed, you know, 10 Houthis. So there is these big fears of escalation, especially because these two events happened in the last week. So I think we're likely going to see more more US I mean I don't know about intervention but but the US is definitely being pulled in more than it was at the beginning of the war.
1: Hmm. Sarah, I'm also wondering about what this all means for what's happening within Gaza because we're months into this war and there are more than 20,000 people dead in Gaza. Has Israel said anything about how its tactics could be changing there, or should we be interpreting the events of this week as a signaling of perhaps lessening the pressure within Gaza to take Hamas out and looking outside of Gaza to do that?
0: So, Israel earlier this week announced that it had withdrawn some of its troops from northern Gaza where a lot of the really intensive fighting and bombardment had been taking place. And that was part of what it called the third phase of the war. This third phase, I think, is expected to be slower. It's allowing Israel to avoid criticism of the mounting civilian deaths in Gaza. It's also something that it's done to uh, appease the U.S. in parts, which is something an Israeli official, I believe, said in the last couple of days. Part of this third phase, now we're assessing, seems to be these targeted assassinations. Aruri was the biggest, you know, Hamas official that they've been able to kill. They can only reach and kill so many in Gaza because a lot of them are expected to be deep down underground and hiding. So it's difficult to be able to, I mean, even gauge whether they were successful in killing Hamas leaders there or not. But this shift that we're seeing is part of Israel's announced third phase of the war.
1: Hmm. Sarah, just looking ahead to the coming days, what will you be paying attention to most closely to give you an indication of of how things could shift and turn in the region?
0: I think all eyes are going to be on Nasrallah's speech. His speech is set to commemorate the one-week killing of a top Iranian commander in Syria, which Syria and Hezbollah blamed on Israel also, which could be seen also as part of this you know, third phase. That's more in line with DC's policy in targeting key figures. So I think in the, I'm not sure how much in the coming weeks we're gonna see this targeting of key figures just because now the game is known and there's an assumption that a lot of these figures are gonna go into hiding, as I said. But I think right now, for in the immediate future, all eyes are gonna be on Nasrallah's speech tomorrow to see what kind of response Hezbollah launches and what Israel's response is going to be to that.
1: Sarah, thank you so much for joining us and explaining all of this for us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Sarah Dedouche is a correspondent for The Post in Beirut. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Brenny Svernovsky. It was mixed by Sam Baer and edited by Maggie Penman. Thanks to Jesse Messner-Hage, Sabi Robinson, and Monica Campbell. If you're looking for the latest updates on the big news of the day, check out our morning news briefing The Seven. We bring you the seven stories you need to know about every weekday morning by 7 am. You can listen to it wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.